Patriots podcast. I'm your host, Sal Asante, and things definitely look weird today. I'm sitting here in my car. I got baseball practice lined up in about 45 minutes. And who better to talk to when I got baseball practice than a baseball author himself? I would love to introduce everybody here. I have Kirk McKnight. How you doing, Kirk? Good. Thanks. Hi, everybody. So, Hello, everybody. So Kirk, <laughs> so Kirk wrote, well, I want to say you wrote this book technically already, but you're rewriting this and putting a new spin on. And I can, I would venture to say you put a pretty big change on your angle on Vin, Vince Scully, um, especially with his passing recently and the passing of some of our older legends in the game as of late. Yeah, I mean, the, the book got into the editor, the manuscript got into the editor on August 1st, and then Vin passed away on August 2nd. So that changed the whole mm-hmm. thing. Because I basically reached out to the editor and asked her if you can basically change up or, or edit the, the first 32 chapters of this book, I'd like to do something to basically celebrate and commemorate Vin Scully. And she said, okay, you got two weeks. And so what I did was I reached out that day, put the fillers out to about 50 or so broadcasters, and I got about 35 responses just a lot of broadcasters sharing their own personal memories of Vin Scully. And so mm-hmm. I wiped completely wiped a chapter that was in the original two editions from the book. And that was a book in which, I mean, coincidentally, it was a chapter in which we talked about voices of the past, but now Vin is the voice of the past. And so that chapter, right. you know, is, is gone and a good chunk of a different chapter on ballparks of the past was taken out mainly because I added about 25% content to the book overall with all the different things that have been happening. So this book is definitely changed and different from the original hardcover edition and even from the paperback edition that came out in 2017. So what was your original intention in writing that first book? And was that your first ever published piece of work? It was my first ever published book. And my, my original intention was intention was to basically provide a, a backdrop uh, for how baseball is as a venue overall. Um, each ballpark is different and each ballpark brings with its own, with, it, with itself, its own peculiarities, its own idiosyncrasies. Baseball is the only major sport that is not uniform. It is a universal sport when it comes to dimensions. Different ballparks play different ways and and they're in different regions. So that was the main focus beginning. And then I thought, well, you know, there's plenty of books that sit there and talk about this ballpark. Go to this ballpark and go to section 103 and have this hot dog. I didn't wanna do that. I wanted to talk about the history of the ballpark and who better to do it than the broadcasters who are there longer than a lot of the people. A lot of times you'll sit there and you'll find out a broadcaster has been going for 40 years. Vin Scully broadcast for 67 years, something that is unprecedented. And How about some of them outlive stadiums? They outlive the city. In Vin's case, he moved with Brooklyn out to Los Angeles. And yes, there are many instances where there are broadcasters who would compare the way the ball played in the old stadium to the new one. And you can see 
the effect on some of these star players. For example, I'll, I'll give one example. David Wright had such a strong offensive showing at Shea and his numbers started to drop off when they went over to City because City Field, where the New York Mets play, is much more pitcher-oriented than the way Shea was. Shea played, right. Shea played more to the hitters, and City plays more to the pitchers, it seems. And Without a doubt. Yeah. Especially to right field with all those lefties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so there we have that. And Joe Maurer going from the Metrodome for with the Twins to go into target right. field. He would have a heyday in the Metrodome. A lot of the hitters would, but target field plays plays pretty deep for hitters. It does. Cold weather can be really problematic, especially in the early months of the season, for hitters trying to really get their power numbers up. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for, I mean, we'll stray away a little bit, but for a guy like Maurer, one of my childhood heroes, watching him grow up, like when I had to play catcher, he was the guy I molded my game off of. And he was just a guy that seemed to want to hit the ball hard. He didn't really look for power. So when the place was concealed and the elements weren't as much of a factor, he just played amazing. He played off the walls. Um, Not to say he didn't afterward, but his game changed. Yeah, for sure. Right. But the announcers carried right through they carried right through and then and that was the thing because when you look at minnesota people are wondering why in the world would you open up an air open air ballpark in minnesota you know right. when when the opening sees opening day is late uh late march early april and i mean they do have a point there but also the broadcaster uh, dick bramer for the the twins he said, uh, I've been inside for 28 years. I appreciate the uh, the free and fresh air. <laughs> right, right. I can imagine. And it feels more like baseball being outside, especially in the summer. Yeah. I mean, and that was, I mean, however long he was at the, you know, that's when I talked to him, it was just barely maybe the second or third season of Target Field. So, you know, he 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 was still just getting used to that open air. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one question I definitely wanted to ask was, aside from Vin Scully, what would you say was your most anticipated section of the book to write? I mean, you have to look when you talk about unique ballparks, you have to look at Fenway and and the Red Sox, because it is definitely a model uh it be, you know, it became the model for the park that actually is looked at the model for this rejuvenation of ballpark uh, differentiation. That was, sorry, two big mouthful words there. But you know, when you look at Camden Yards and, yeah. in Baltimore, that really set the precedent in this new era. And that precedent- Which is one of my been, favorite parks. Right. And that precedent wouldn't have been set without ballparks like- Correct. Fenway or Wrigley that are built into these neighborhoods. You know, a lot of times you'll see a ballpark built out in the sticks. That way it, it cre- doesn't create a parking problem. It, there's all kinds of different things, but, but Fenway, Wrigley, and, and some of these newer ballparks that are kind of adopting that style of, of Fenway and Wrigley, they're right there in the middle of the neighborhoods, just like in San Francisco where the Giants play now. Totally. Uh, if you think about Candlestick Park, it was just out, you know, it was, it was kind of adjacent to a neighborhood and that can be a pain in the butt when, when you're leaving a Monday night football game, but it also wasn't right. You know, candlestick compared to Oracle park is huge. (laughs) It's just huge because uh, Oracle, you're talking about some prime real estate in one of the, 
you know, richest cities in America. And you're right trying to the ballpark right in the middle of all that. And they managed to do it. And they overcame yeah. the odds that the Port Authority wanted those dimensions to be way shorter than they are now. And they're looking, I'm like, we can't do that. If, But, you know, the Port mm-hmm. Authority was saying that because of the water, the waterfront. And they they won their argument or the, you know, the, the, the team won its argument and basically had it right. at once, but you can see what kind of a situation that creates when you have that little space. Absolutely. Absolutely. So is there any, uh, back home bias from that? Who was your team growing up? <laughs> well, my team growing up was the Braves cause I had access to okay. them on TBS. And gotcha. And my favorite player was Del Murphy. I actually wrote an argument for Del Murphy's legitimacy for the Hall of Fame back in 2019. When Del got traded to the Phillies, there went my connection because I wasn't able to see him every day. So there went my fandom of the Braves. And then I kind of bounced around and Cecil Fielder was my favorite player when he got traded to the Yankees. So then the Yankees became my team. So that brought back, you know, Yankees are, and a lot of people would call me a bandwagoner for that, but it was my favorite player going to that team. And when you have, when you, when you follow the Yankees, especially now with, with technology and, and all these uh, TV packages, MLB network always plays the, the YAS games. <laughs> so yes, if you got the MLB yeah. network, you're probably yeah. you're most of the time, especially when somebody like Aaron Judge is chasing the home run record and, and no matter where you're tuned into, they throw it right back to that. And how many of us got to watch Michael Kay and David Cohn and, and Paul O'Neill broadcast throughout August and September because of that home run chase. Right. The team was sinking, but he was, a, he was definitely a light in the tunnel. Uh, you're just giving me chills. And I guess I might as well ask you now, um, how was it doing the Michael K and David Cohn section of the book there? Um, I didn't read it myself, but I'm saving it in order, but I was making sure that you had it in there in the book so I could read it and then sure they're on the list. Um, with Michael Kay, it was great because he had an understanding of what I wanted, but he also had the practicality of his own schedule. I met Michael Kay after doing an interview with John Sterling at Angel Stadium. We actually did most of the interview in Michael Kay's booth, and he was in the commissary for Angel Stadium. So I approached him and I said, I just used your booth, <laughs> like kind of an icebreaker. Thank you for the use of your booth. Now, you know, Michael Case probably thinking, who is this random person just thanking me for using my workspace? And I did not allow this. I did not sign off on this. And I let him know what I was doing. And I let him know who I talked to and that I just talked with John. And he basically have, if you're, if you, if you guys can understand, Michael K is just so busy. You guys can see that there's the K Rod mm-hmm. broadcast during the regular season, it seems not to mention his own broadcast of Yankee games. So he clearly has a busy schedule, even busier now than he did probably in 2014 when I approached him. So he just said, could I just email you this? And I'm like, sure. To me, that's like, great. I don't have to sit here and transcribe the interview for an hour and a half and write it down on a computer. I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm so, uh, I'm such a dinosaur with these things that like I'm sitting there listening to it and typing it after so <laughs> was so generous and so willing to help, even no matter when I asked. And I was just always appreciative of that. But we also kind of wow. understood each other's schedules or specifically I understood his schedule and how demanding it is. And he was still able to put that in. And, 
you know, there's a couple of things that, that he shared with me that aren't in the book just for, you know, the purposes of, of just the length and, and, and restrictions as far as the, the content and page count. But right. you know, he was broadcasting Kluber's no hitter in an empty stadium. You know, nobody around, and he's sitting there broadcasting. Years. And I believe that game took place in Texas, but he was broadcasting at Yankee Stadium in his booth yeah. before nobody, and he's broadcasting a no-hitter. I mean, he's d- only done that a handful of times, obviously, in his career, and he's doing it with nobody around and just watching it on a monitor. Right. Oh, my goodness. And and what was his experience with that? How did he feel about that whole um, COVID time in general? Well, that particular game, he said it was very kind of eerie. You know, broadcasting in an empty stadium, it seemed kind of eerie and dark. You know, it seemed lonely to him as well. And, you know, not not specifically, he didn't comment on the COVID restrictions, but I was able to have, you know, with this new edition, I was able to go back and talk with broadcasters who had their restrictions because of of everything that people were doing. Uh, The San Diego Padres radio broadcast team, they broadcast the team's first ever no-hitter, Joe, Joe Musgrove's no-hitter in April of 2021. They right. were broadcasting that game back in, in San Diego in the visitors' TV booth. This is a game that's happening 1,300 miles away in, in Arlington. It's because of just the restrictions for visiting broadcasting. So they wow. had to call that game, but they were basically, I mean, they're radio broadcasters. So, I mean, they were they were basically doing what they're hired to do. They're kind of used to it, yeah. They were painting the picture. And, and that's one perfect example, because these are like fold out tables, like doing makeshift right. kind of production crew here, fold out tables, they're kind of sitting uh, next to each other, but like kind of also just like, it's, it, it seems it's like part right? and, 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 and Mike Wilner for the Toronto Blue Jays was similar to that too, because the Blue Jays weren't allowed to travel. You know, they were traveling, they, they didn't have a home game for almost a year and a half. Yeah, they were they were playing up in Buffalo. Were they playing, playing in Buffalo? Buffalo they're playing in Dunedin, Florida, yep. where their spring training site is, and then they were bouncing around different uh, ballparks. Uh, you know, it, it's like they were they had no home until like late June or maybe late July of 2021. And right. once they got home, they made a push, and they just barely missed making the playoffs by a game. Absolutely, yeah. No, that was so fun to watch. And then last year, of course, they made it in, but. Um, flopped a little bit. Um, so, <laughs> so nowadays when you're watching, you would say you you might root for the Yankees. I'm sure you have you have heartstrings in quite a bit of cities after talking to all these people. Um, who are what city? What city? I want to say is gonna is gonna really strike you the most. What are you gonna remember the most about one particular city that you visited? Well, I haven't visited all 30 ballparks. I, I wish I had gone. I wish I have you know before this book coming out. I wish I had gone to Camden Yards, which I will eventually. It's kind of it's kind of like a bucket list, but I think that even more so than Fenway Park, as far as my bucket list item, because don't go to Fenway. <laughs> well, I've got to just to, just to cross it off. I know. But, but I know, I know. That's the Yankee fan in me. No, no yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I've been there. When, when yeah. people ask me, you know, if you're a fan, I say I'm a fan of all the teams. Um, Agreed. And. Uh, I am a fan of the broadcasters and I've been able to, if you read the book, you're going to see plenty on the Yankees in their chapter, but you're going to see plenty on the Yankees in many other chapters because the Yankees yep. downfall <laughs> for was, you know, right. one person's misery is another person's uh, 
victory kind of right. thing. And so, you know, you have most memorable games for a vi- for an opposing broadcaster to the Yankees. And so you can seeing that like with Joe Castiglione, seeing, you know, him calling the Red Sox coming from down 03 and, and winning that World Series and even right. beating the Yankees in 2018 in the in the wild card, not the wild card, but the division series, you know, en route to the 2018 championship, you kind of you kind of like feel for them and or not feel for them, but feel happy for them, I guess. Feel for them is a sympathy term. I'm saying you feel happy for them. You're you feel grateful right. alongside them for the experiences they've been able to have. And there's plenty of those throughout the book where the Yankees were, you know, the uh the, On the butt uh, end losing team. For example, obviously Arizona Diamondbacks game seven, 2001. Uh, excellent part of the book talking about Tim McCarver's call, Greg Schulte, the Diamondbacks, obviously talking about everything that led up to it. And so many things that many people who probably have forgotten about would not even know. Um, just different things that didn't happen in that ninth inning. Uh, Scott Brocious uh, not making the throw across the diamond after. Right. Mo, Mo threw it to him immediately on that bunt attempt. Uh, they said that Scott Brocious would have had that runner by about four or five steps if he had just fired across, but he wasn't thinking that. He just, you know, he, he just threw it, put it in his pocket, and there we go, one out. No, you got to get that second out. Who knows what would have happened if he had gotten that second out? The tur- the tables would have completely turned. The pitching change or the pitching style would have been different. All those kinds of things, and these are things that broadcasters bring up. And after the fact. Right. Now we all kind of, we can all be all kind of like Monday morning quarterbacks, but the broadcasters knew this yeah. at the moment. And Tim McCarver talking about the the infielders playing in the drawn in infielders, but with Mariano's pitching style, he pitches in on the hitters, and it leads to those kind of bloops into the deep part of the infield. And since the pit, and since everybody was playing so far in. Like that ball went over Jeter's head and Gonzalez scored without a problem because they played the infield in so much. Right. That bloop would have been caught, you know, if they had been drawn and not been drawn in. So it's like so pathetic what yep. Tim McCarver did in calling that. And and Joe Buck is like high-fiving him as he's announcing the Diamondbacks winning the World Series. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's, that's an amazing moment because I look back on that. That was before I could even remember anything, but I look back and I'm like, how did you guys mess that one up? You're always Monday morning quarterback, and especially when you weren't weren't there. Um, that's me 15 years later as a Yankee fan looking back, right? Um, so I'm thinking now, are you do you work in and around baseball uh, daily? What do you what do you do for work? I'm actually an editor of a newspaper, small town newspaper in, in a little oh, small nice. town called Wickenburg, Arizona. And we're about 50 miles outside of Phoenix. So I mean the the spring training. I was party to spring training this last month and I was able to do some interviews like in the ballparks for, for promoting the book. And I was able right. to take in, you know, uh, plenty of spring training, putting flyers on the windshields uh, during Dodger games because the yep. flyer has been Scully's face on it. And, and obviously Dodger games will draw a ton. And uh, so I was able to take full advantage of, of being this close to spring training. It's uh, it's definitely something you got a city like Phoenix, where there's about almost 5 million people in the city limits all around the Valley. And you got right. baseball spread throughout the Valley. There's Did you get to take in any baseball? I'm sorry. Did you get to take in any baseball yourself? In I went to five games this year and, and uh, 
and and it was great you know see, okay. I saw four new sites that i hadn't so i've seen all i've seen only the only site that i haven't seen out here in spring training is where the angels play in tempe but there's okay. 10 ballparks here in spring training i think there's like maybe 11 or 12 maybe 13 in tampa where the grapefruit league is so there's right. a whole other ballpark tour right there just spring training alone is a ballpark tour that's a lot more uh, feasible and plausible right. because you're really just, you know, the farthest park to the, you know, one point to the other is probably about 45 minutes from one to the right. other. Right. No, it's definitely a challenge I want to get to. Um, so with your five games scene, um, might be asking a lot, but you got any, any guys to look out for that are maybe a little under the radar heading into the year? I mean, I went to, I went and saw the, the guardians play in, in Scottsdale and I'm already I'm already seeing where I'm going to put Stephen Kwan on my fantasy team. Uh, okay. That team that team is pretty loaded offensively. When you see that they brought in Josh Bell and and Stephen Kwan was already kind of making a name for himself last year uh, as somebody to you know to look out for. He was making some serious moves and making especially against the Yankees, huh? Right. Especially against the Yankees in that series. Right. And he's and he's somebody that you'd need to look out for. Um, DeGrom pitching uh, in Texas is something that people need to realize, uh, you know, seven years ago or, or let's see. Well, I mean, the, the Rangers have been in their new home since 2020. So we'll say four years ago, uh, you know, that old uh, Globe Life Park, the old ballpark where they played, that was a hitter's paradise and pitchers hated it. Now, Globe Life Field is a little bit of a different is a different story. I don't think I don't think that Degrom makes that deal to come to the Rangers if they're in their old ballpark. Couldn't I mean, agree more. And and now I watched him I watched him pitch uh, this last Saturday in about three or four innings, and he struck out the side. As soon as he was out, the Padres just jumped all over the relievers. So uh, I, I would say look for Degrom. He's back in a, you know, he's he was in a pitcher-friendly ballpark in City Field, and he's going to be one in one in Globe Life Field. I feel as well, and they will close that stadium. They will close that roof a lot throughout the season, which sure. definitely helps the pitcher and not the hitter. When those ballparks who have those closable roofs, especially when the air is hot, in desert yep. situations or, or very humid, high sun scorched areas like Dallas. That ballpark being closed is all a pitcher can ask for. <laughs> and then you right, open, yeah. that's, all the, that's yeah. all the hitters can ask for is to be open and let that wind start carrying that ball out. The wind and that hot air rising, they just want to backspin one right in the gap and watch it fly. That's all they yeah. want to do. Yeah, right. absolutely. So you're out in Arizona. You have any sort of ties over with the Diamondbacks over there? Uh, no, just they're friendly. And, you know, I've, I've covered <laughs> stories for the newspaper and, and, you know, saw people from the, you know, the Diamondbacks personnel. And so, you know, they, they're nice enough to get me tickets to the game if ever I ask, you know, I don't try to ask too much, but they, they've been pretty compliant and, and helping me out because they're just nice people. And right. I'm telling you, like, I would go to the games with my wife and her grandparents and my daughter and my wife's grandparents, um, you know, they're like in their hot in their late 80s. And the staff there are just so accommodating. They're so nice and they don't take tips. They do it out of the kindness of their hearts. They refuse tips wow. if you try to. And I just I thought and I told them, I said, I've been to 20 ballparks 
And I don't think I've ever seen anybody as, as amiable and just polite and courteous and just giving such great customer service as you guys. Wow. That's really impressive. Um, if I had any access to them or anything even close to what you have, I would love to watch them. So now a question on them. Did you get to watch, you had to get to watch Dalton Varsho in person. How was he when you got to see him in a ballpark? He's such a likable character. That's the thing. He's likable and he does his, he does, you know, I never actually met him, but they, you know, on, on Bally sports, which who carries the diamondbacks, you know, they always have their little, mm-hmm whatever interviews they have and they put them in game and stuff like that. And, you know, they tape them and have them. Yeah. And Dalton is one of the, you know, those who, who, uh, and, and he went, at, he's up in Toronto, isn't he now? Yeah. He got traded away. Yeah. yeah. So I can go watch him in a Yankee game. That's why I'm thinking about it. <laughs> right. And yeah, I just, just thinking about like a, a person who would be a great ambassador uh, for his position. Mm-hmm. I definitely think he's the kind of person. It's, it's always great to see somebody who's willing to take time out of their, free schedule and and do that you know because they're not no way coaches are letting them sit there and go like uh, yeah coach i'm gonna have to be about an hour late i've got to film it. yeah no that doesn't fly with the with the manager uh exactly. of the baseball team so you know this is going to be in their own personal time and anybody that takes that time out to to, to talk with and actually have a special uh basically filmed on them you know that kind of stuff takes a little bit of time we only see like Absolutely. a five or ten minutes but you know that kind of filming takes a lot longer than that. Yeah. How many takes, how many cuts, how many edits? Yep. Right. How much of it is never seen exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just, uh, just want to kind of wrap it up by just talking about what are your plans with this book? So I know you were planning to release it sometime in April. Do you have a date? Well, yeah, the publisher is already shipping it out. Uh, Beautiful. So, I mean, if you get, if you actually get on Roman.com, that's Roman with a W. You can order okay. the copy now. It's already being shipped out. Uh, if you use coupon code RLFANDF30 through the publisher, you get 30% off. Perfect. Amazon is going to start shipping it out April 12th. There um, you go. So, I mean, sometimes people like to go the Amazon route, and that's fine. They have Amazon Prime. They got free shipping. But it's about $11 cheaper on the on the publisher's website if you want to use that coupon code. Um, but it's it's... I mean, it's available for pre-order now. If you order, through nice. Amazon, you can get it in, in a couple of weeks. If you order through the publisher, you can get it in three days. Beautiful. So I will have all those links down in the description. That way you can get access to the book. And what is the title exactly? The Voices of Baseball, The Game's Greatest Broadcasters Reflect on America's Pastime. Beautiful. Because there was no way I was going to remember every single word of that. <laughs> so, just to close it out, though. So your feelings on, on baseball, where, where did you originate kind of your feeling and love for baseball? I know you kind of mentioned before you had some players, you know, Cecil Fielder. And I think you said uh, Murphy as well. Is it Dale Murphy? So mm-hmm. if I had those type of players, I'd definitely get into the game. But did you play as a kid? I did. I played a little bit, uh, Little League. and. Uh, they made me catcher though, and I hated it. So I resented one of the worst positions, isn't it? It's just grueling when you're a nine or ten year old lugging that equipment around, and and the pitcher's not always throwing the ball the best, and so it's hitting the backstop a lot. And I can't say that I was the best catcher, and the about you know pass balls were probably my specialty. I probably led the league in pass balls, oh, but uh, I really lost my flavor for playing baseball, doing that. But I've always loved baseball. I've always loved going to the games. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy going to hockey games and baseball games. Those are my two favorite. So 
even though I stopped playing, it always kind of was a, a, something that in, in, in amazed me. And, and baseball is one of those sports where you can take an interest in it from a scientific approach. I, I love the movie Moneyball because anybody who is such a good movie, you know, it's yeah, it's such an amazing movie. And anybody who has any kind of like of or, 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 or passion for baseball will know these things that come up in the movie and not everybody's going to know them. You know, not everybody's going to know about on-base percentage. They're not going to know about war. They're not going to know about, uh, right. you know, stealing versus um, uh, hit and run or anything like that. You know, they're, they're, some of these things you break it down and, uh, and honestly, like the game is changing back as we speak, which is great. Um, and that is one thing that I hope is going to rejuvenate the, the the country and the world's interest back to baseball because mm. the games are speeding along. Having gone right. to five games in the pre in the in the spring training, you realize that pitch clock is really moving the game along. That was going to be my last question: was the new rules that you got to see? Yeah, yeah. You like them? You see? Yeah. What? You like them? You like the new rules? I do like them because I like. When you have when you have the shift on, you're going to notice a huge inflow of home runs, walks, or strikeouts. It's like the three true outcomes go up dramatically. Yeah, and so and and where have the stolen bases been? If you think about the stolen bases, God. when I was a kid, Ricky Henderson would steal more bases in a month. Hundred bases. What? Hundred bases in a year? He would steal. Right, and who's and then some of these guys are like stealing thirty six and they're leading the majors. So it's like exactly. Or, or, you know, I, I mean, Whit Merrifield is actually my favorite player now, and he led the league twice, two years in a row in stolen bases, or he was, or he led the league in hits one of the years and stolen bases and, and hits the next year. And now, hopefully, that's another player to, to look out for if he can find his groove in that Toronto lineup. Now, with this switch being gone, he might start to be the Whit Merrifield that everybody knew him up until last mm -hmm. year. Last year was a pretty much an, an anomaly year for, in my opinion, for Whit. And his fantasy value is way down, and that's fine with me because I, I know what I know what kind of value he holds. And in right. that lineup, that's a great hitting lineup. And with this whole shift being gone, and with the pitch clock, those are the things that make Whit Merrifield a more uh, deadly opponent hitting wise. Absolutely, and mistake me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't he a switch hitter? Uh, you know, I don't know if he is or not. I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt it because he's a switch fielder. <laughs> <laughs> he plays second base. He plays outfield, but. If you get in one of those rotisserie leagues where he doesn't have to, or you get in one of those week-to-week uh, -week leagues where you don't have to actually have him play that position, but he shows up on it in the, right. in the sheets and all that, get him because you can throw him in second or an outfield. I'll probably have to use him as an outfielder if I draft in my rotisserie league because I don't think he's seeing second base action in that lineup. I don't think so either, now. But other than that, Kirk, um, I really just wanted to thank you. I mean, this is an awesome opportunity. I'm really going to enjoy the rest of your book. I know I only got to hammer through like like 10 parts of it so far. So I, I'm really loving it so far. I hope that everybody out there gets to go take a look at this. Um, take a look at some of the work that you've done. It's, it's really impressive. And I just got to commend you on creating something that I truly believe will kind of work towards making this game more accessible to more people, kind of like what you were saying before. Um, seems like baseball is kind of getting lost, thrown into the weeds a little bit. And um, it's kind of on us as baseball fans, I think, to bring it back. It really is. And the broadcasters, I mean, I've talked to broadcasters who have said, you know, 
contemplated retirement, but have held off the retirement because they're interested in to see how the flow get, goes on this on this season with the pitch clock. And that to wow. me says something. If you're at That's the 10, 40, 45 year career and you're willing to put one more in just to see how this works mm-hmm. out. I think mm. I think it's kind of their way of saying I want to end on a note that makes me look back on this game, not in you know with uh, you know uh, a, ma- a, ma- a sense of like disgruntledness, <laughs> right? Like with and I know that that's probably not even a word, but you don't want to look back disgruntled. You want to look back, you know. That, isn't that a song by the Oasis? Don't look back in anger. That's that's a Absolutely. great that's a great line to think of the broadcasters who are contemplating retiring don't look back in anger look back at this season as something that uh you've wanted for a long time and now you're getting oh man i love that what a (laughs) what a great way to what a great way to end it well kirk like i said again thank you so much and to everybody else go check out his book um you're going to get both versions if you'd like you had the original hardcover and now you have versions out it seems like on every platform possible to buy books so go check out the links in in the description for that Otherwise, I hope to see everybody else soon, maybe next week, maybe a couple weeks. For now, peace out. Thank you. I'ma make all these bitches say, damn, I wish I were the fucking state. I want to be something, not nothing. Trapped inside my dream and I'm running, running away from these demons. But the feeling's so good, I'ma keep dreaming.